Section 18 of Greece and Rome. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kevin Barbudo. The World Story, Volume 4, Greece and Rome. Edited by Eva March Tappan. Section 18. How Themistocles Brought About the Battle of Salamis. Footnote. From Plutarch's Lives, corrected and translated by A. H. Clough. Copyright USA, 1876, by Little, Brown, and Company. End of footnote. 480 B.C. by Plutarch. The first two attempts of the Persians to conquer Greece had failed, and now a third was undertaken by Xerxes, the son of Darius. The vast preparations that he had made for this expedition are described in Volume 2. In the spring of the year 481 B.C., having collected about 900,000 soldiers and about 1,300 ships, and built a canal around Mount Athos for his navy and a bridge across the Hellespont for his army, the Persian king set out to conquer Greece. The only attempt upon the part of the Greeks to withstand the invading army was at Thermopylae, and after the destruction of Leonidas and his Spartans, the capture of Athens appeared inevitable. The Athenian citizens could agree upon no plan of action, and in despair they sent a deputation to consult the famous oracle at Delphi. The only help given by the oracle was the advice, Safe shall the wooden walls continue for thee and thy children. And the Athenians could not agree upon its meaning. Another line in the response was so ambiguous that it greatly puzzled them. This was, Holy Salamis, thou shalt destroy the offspring of women. The Editor Themistocles, being at a loss, and not able to draw the people over to his opinion by any human reason, set his machines to work, as in a theater, and employed prodigies and oracles. The serpent of Minerva, kept in the inner part of her temple, disappeared. The priests gave it out to the people that the offerings which were set for it were found untouched, and declared, by the suggestion of Themistocles, that the goddess had left the city, and taken her flight before them towards the sea and he often urged them with the oracle which bade them trust to walls of wood, showing them that walls of wood could signify nothing else but ships, and that the island of Salamis was termed in it, not miserable or unhappy, but had the epithet of the divine, for that it should one day be associated with the great good fortune of the Greeks. At length his opinion prevailed, and he obtained a decree that the city should be committed by the protection of Minerva, queen of Athens, that they who were of age to bear arms should embark, and that each should see to sending away his children, women, and slaves where he could. This decree being confirmed, most of the Athenians removed their parents, wives, and children to treason, where they were received with eager goodwill by the treasonians, who passed a vote that they should be maintained at the public charge, by a daily payment of two oboli to every one, footnote, about eight cents, end footnote, and leave be given to the children to gather fruit where they pleased, and schoolmasters pay to instruct them. This vote was proposed by Nicagoras. There was no public treasure at that time in Athens, but the council of Areopagus, as Aristotle says, distributed to every one that served eight drachmas, which was a great help to the manning of the fleet. But Clydemus ascribes this also to the art of Themistocles. Footnote. The Attic drachma was equal to about twenty-four cents. End of footnote. When the Athenians were on their way down to the haven of Piraeus, the shield with the head of Medusa was missing, and he, under the pretext of searching for it, ransacked all places, and found among their goods considerable sums of money concealed, 
which he applied to the public use. And with this the soldiers and seamen were well provided for their voyage. When the whole city of Athens were going on board, it offered a spectacle worthy of pity alike and admiration, to see them thus send away their fathers and children before them, and, unmoved with their cries and tears, passed over into the island. But that which stirred compassion most of all was, that many old men, by reason of their great age, were left behind. And even the tame domestic animals could not be seen without some pity, burning about the town and howling, as desirous to be carried along with their masters that had kept them, among which it is reported that Xanthippus, the father of Pericles, had a dog that would not endure to stay behind, but leaped into the sea, and swam along the galley's side till he came to the island of Salamis, where he fainted away and died, and that spot in the island, which is still called the dog's grave, is said to be his. Among the great actions of Themistocles at this crisis, the recall of Aristides was not the least, for, before the war, he had been ostracized by the party which Themistocles heeded, and was in banishment. But now, perceiving that the people regretted his absence, and were fearful that he might go over to the Persians to revenge himself, and thereby ruin the affairs of Greece, Themistocles proposed a decree that those who were banished for a time might return again, to give assistance by word and deed to the cause of Greece with the rest of their fellow citizens. Eurybiades, by reason of the greatness of Sparta, was admiral of the Greek fleet, but yet was faint-hearted in time of danger, and willing to weigh anchor and set sail for the isthmus of Corinth, near which the land army lay encamped, which Themistocles resisted. And this is the occasion of the well-known words, when Eurybiades, to check his impatience, told him that at the Olympic Games they that start up before the rest are lashed. And they, replied Themistocles, that are left behind are not crowned. Again, Eurybiades lifting up his staff as if he were going to strike, Themistocles said, Strike if you will, but hear. Eurybiades, wondering much at his moderation, desired him to speak, and Themistocles now brought him to a better understanding. And when one who stood by him told him that it did not become those who had neither city nor house to lose to persuade others to relinquish their habitations and forsake their countries, Themistocles gave this reply, we have indeed left our houses and our walls, base fellow, not thinking it fit to become slaves for the sake of things that have no life nor soul. And yet our city is the greatest of all Greece, consisting of two hundred galleys, which are here to defend you, if you please. But if you run away and betray us, as you did once before, the Greeks shall soon hear news of the Athenians possessing as fair a country, and as large and free a city, as that they have lost. These expressions of Themistocles made Eurybiades suspect that if he retreated the Athenians would fall off from him. When one of Eritrea began to oppose him, he said, Have you anything to say of war, that are like an inkfish? You have a sword, but no heart. Some say that while Themistocles was thus speaking things upon the deck, an owl was seen flying to the right hand of the fleet, which came and sat upon the top of the mast. And this happy omen so far disposed the Greeks to follow his advice, that they presently prepared to fight. Yet, when the enemy's fleet was arrived at the haven of Phalerum, upon the coast of Attica, and with the number of their ships concealed all the shore, and when they saw the king himself in person come down of his land army to the seaside, with all his forces united, then the good counsel of Themistocles was soon forgotten, and the Peloponnesians cast their eyes again toward the Isthmus, and took it very ill if anyone spoke against their returning home, and, resolving to depart that night, the pilots had order what course to steer. Themistocles, in great distress that the Greeks should retire, and lose the advantage of the narrow seas and strait passage, and slip home every one to his own city, considered with himself, 
and contrived that stratagem that was carried out by Sisinus. This Sisinus was a Persian captive, but a great lover of Themistocles, and the attendant of his children. Upon this occasion, he sent him privately to Xerxes, commanding him to tell the king that Themistocles, the admiral of Athenians, having espoused his interest, wished to be the first to inform him that the Greeks were ready to make their escape, and that he counseled him to hinder their flight, to set upon them while they were in this confusion, at a distance from their land army, and hereby destroy all their forces by sea. Xerxes was very joyful at this message, and received it as from one who wished him all that was good, and immediately issued instructions to the commanders of his ships, that they should instantly set out with two hundred galleys to encompass all the islands, and enclose all the straits and passages, that none of the Greeks might escape, and that they should afterwards follow with the rest of their fleet at leisure. This being done, Aristides, the son of Lysimachus, was the first man that perceived it, and went to the tent of Themistocles, not out of any friendship, for he had been formerly banished by his means, as has been related, but to inform him how they were encompassed by their enemies. Themistocles, knowing the generosity of Aristides, and much struck by his visit at the time, imparted to him all that he had transacted by Sisinus, and entreated him that, as he would be more readily believed among the Greeks, as he would make use of his credit to help induce them to stay and fight their enemies in the narrow seas. Aristides applauded Themistocles, and went to the other commanders and captains of the galleys, and encouraged them to engage. Yet they did not perfectly assent to him, till a galley of Tenos, which deserted from the Persians, of which Panicia was commander, came in, while they were still doubting, and confirmed the news that all the straits and passages were beset. And then their age and fury, as well as their necessity, provoked them all to fight. As soon as it was day, Xerxes placed himself high up to view his fleet and how it was set in order. Thanademus says he sat upon a promontory above the temple of Hercules, where the coast of Attica is separated from the island by a narrow channel. But Acestodorus writes that it was in the confines of Megara, upon those hills which are called the Horns, where he sat in a chair of gold, with many secretaries about him to write down all that was done in the fight. When Themistocles was about to sacrifice, close to the admiral's galley, there were three prisoners brought to him, fine-looking men, and richly dressed in ornamented clothing and gold, said to be the children of Artectes and Sandos, sister to Xerxes. As soon as the prophet Euphrontides saw them, and observed that at the same time the fire blazed out from the offerings with a more than ordinary flame, and a man sneezed on the right, which was an intimation of a fortunate event, he took Themistocles by the hand, and bade him consecrate the three young men for sacrifice, and offer them up with prayers for victory to Bacchus, the devourer. So should the Greeks not only have saved themselves, but also obtain victory. Themistocles was much disturbed at this strange and terrible prophecy, but the common people, who, in any difficult crisis and great exigency, ever look for relief rather to strange and extravagant than to reasonable means, calling upon Bacchus with one voice, led the captives to the altar and compelled the execution of the sacrifice, as the prophet had commanded. This is reported by Phanius the Lesbian, a philosopher well-read in history. The number of enemies' ships the poet Aeschylus gives in his tragedy called the Persians, as on his certain knowledge, in the following words, Xerxes, I know, did into battle lead one thousand ships of more than usual speed, seven and two hundred, so it is agreed. The Athenians had a hundred and eighty, in every ship eighteen men fought upon the deck, four of them were archers and the rest men-at-arms. As Themistocles had fixed upon the most advantageous place, so, with no less sagacity, he chose the best time of fighting, for he would not run the pros of the galleys against the Persians, 
nor began the fight till the time of day was come when there regularly blows in a fresh breeze from the open sea and brings in with it a strong swell to the channel which was no inconvenience to the greek ships which were low built and a little above the water but did much to hurt the persians which had high sterns and lofty decks and were heavy and cumbrous in their movements as it presented them broadside to the quick charges of the greeks who kept their eyes upon the motions of themistocles as their best example and more particularly because opposed to his ship ariamenes admiral of xerxes a brave man and by far the best and worthiest of the king's brothers was seen throwing darts and shooting arrows from his huge galley as from the walls of a castle amenia the decelian and sosicles the pedian who sailed in the same vessel upon the ships meeting stem to stem and transfixing each other with their brazen prows so that they were fastened together when ariamenes attempted to board theirs ran at him with their pikes and thrust him into the sea his body as it floated amongst other shipwrecks was known to artemisia and carried to xerxes it is reported that in the middle of the fight a great flame rose into the air above the city of eleusis and that sounds and voices were heard through all the thriasian plain as far as the sea sounding like a number of men accompanying and escorting the mystic iacus and that a mist seemed to form and rise from the place from whence the sounds came and passing forward fell upon the galleys others believed that they saw apparitions in the shape of armed men reaching out their hands from the island of aegina before the grecian galleys and supposed that they were the eosity whom they had invoked to their aid before the battle the first man that took a ship was lycomedes the athenian captain of a galley who cut down its ensign and dedicated it to apollo the laurel crowned and as the persians fought in a narrow arm of the sea and could bring but part of their fleet to fight and fell foul of one another the greeks thus equalled them in strength and fought with them till the evening forced them back and obtained as says simonides that noble and famous victory than which neither amongst the greeks nor barbarians was ever known more glorious exploit on the seas by the joint valour indeed and zeal of all who fought but by the wisdom and sagacity of themistocles end of section eighteen this recording is in the public domain